Number six, Ephesians, third quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start lesson six, the mystery of the gospel on the Ephesians quarter. Dr. John Pauline is our moderator. Our opening prayer will be by Michael. Dear Heavenly Father, we are gathered today in order to fully comprehend the gospel messages, particularly the message from Paul to the Ephesians and how that impacted not only the lives at the time, but how it impacts our lives. We thank you for the precious word that you have prevailed to provide to us, and we pray that you'll be with each and every one of us this day. And thank you in the name of Jesus, our beloved Savior, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. This is the sixth in a series on the book of Ephesians. And in this particular session, we will be looking at chapter three, which is 21 verses. And we will actually plan to read that before we're done. So let's start, however, with number one on your handout. And that suggests we start in Ephesians 3 and verse 6. And I think you'll understand that when we get there. Ephesians 3 and verse 6. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. All right, so we're starting with verse 6 because it actually summarizes chapter 2. Especially the latter half of chapter 2 is centered on the whole idea of healing the breach between Jews and Gentiles. And this is summarized here in chapter 3. Chapter 3 tends to move on, but it summarizes chapter 2 and stating that the foundation of what we're going to talk about in chapter 3 is found in chapter 2 with this reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. So basically, in chapter 3, Paul takes the main theme of chapter 2 and extends it from the individual to the church to the entire universe. So as we will see when we get into chapter 3, Paul sees the healing between Jew and Gentile as, in a sense, a forecast of the healing that God would like to achieve in the entire universe. It's hinted at in chapter 1, where it says that God's ultimate purpose is to bring unity in the entire universe in Jesus Christ. But here in chapter 3, we are getting back to that expansive concept. As I mentioned last time, the cosmic conflict is never far away in the book of Ephesians, and it kind of lies as a backdrop to everything that takes place. All right, going to number two, let's just read the whole third chapter of Ephesians. And what major points does Paul seem to be making in the chapter? Keep that latter question in mind as we read through it. But first of all, is there a natural dividing point? If you were creating the chapters of Ephesians, would you perhaps divide chapter 3 into 2? If you're simply making you know, a structural move, where in chapter 3 would you make a difference? Where would you break it? So chapter 3 as a whole. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given to me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words. 
a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. All right, so... If you were going to divide this chapter in two parts, where would you make the break? Probably a tough question to ask a group, but I want to give you the chance if you come up with some thoughts on that. Where would you break it and why? Bob? Well, I have a little Bible on my phone, and it makes a break right after 13. So I may be cheating. That's all right. But in looking at that, why would you make a break there? Well, I was reading along in this version, it says the BibleGateway.com. So I'm not actually sure what version I'm reading, but the first part it says is the marvelous plan for the Gentiles. And the second one is a prayer for the Ephesians. So that's what somebody's come up with. But that sounds logical to me because it does seem like at the end, there could be somewhat of a prayer in there. So anyway, I throw that out as at least the nomination. All right. Livius. I'm in the same boat. I have the same division, but it says the sections, first one is for this reason, and the second one is for this reason in verse 14. So it seems like to be these are two explanations that he's bringing forth, and maybe that's why I would break it there at 14. Okay, well, good observation there. Michael, you have another one? Yeah, in the first 13 verses, Paul explains that he's the apostle to the Gentiles. This is a letter addressed to the Gentiles. And then in this verse 14 until the end, he talks about the magnificence of Christ and the the blessings that Christ will bring to all people. I thought that was fairly clear just from the language of the, the epistle. 
All right, good job, folk. Just threw that one at you. If you hadn't read the chapter before coming here, that could be a bit bewildering. But I think at the core, you've noticed in English, chapter 3, verse 1 says, for this reason. And then in 14, it says, for this reason. And that's an unusual Greek construction. In the Greek, it's tutu charin. And it's not something you find all that often. So it's kind of unusual. It stands out. Why is Paul doing that here? And scholars generally have divided it along those lines as moving into a new theme. It's based on what came before, but it's moving in a new direction. And so I think those observations that you've made are helpful here. And we're going to follow that as we study the chapter. One thing to keep in mind, the people who put the wall up in the temple were trying to protect God's reputation. They were trying to do the right thing. And sometimes we who do the right thing may put something in motion that can end up being the wrong thing. And I'm reminded of Carthage in the third century. A severe Roman persecution came into town. And basically what it was is every Christian was required to grab a pinch of incense and drop it into the fire in front of a statue of the emperor. And Christians were divided. What do we do with this requirement? And uh, some of them refused to do it and ended up in prison awaiting their martyrdom. Some of them left town, including the bishop, Cyprian himself, just left town. A third group said, eh, it's no big deal. I'll just go do it. A fourth group bribed an official to fill out a certificate indicating that they'd done it when they hadn't. And a fifth group sent their slave or a friend to do it for them. So you have five reactions. Turned out the persecution was short-lived. It only lasted a couple of weeks. And the martyrs-in-waiting got out of prison, and Cyprian and the crowd that ran away, they came back. And you have these three groups that welched on their commitment. And so the church faced a crisis. What are you going to do? You know, how are you going to deal with this thing? And so they sat down and made an administrative decision. And I think it was a fantastic administrative decision. I think it was the right thing to do. They said, all right, let everyone who failed in this test have a visit with one of the church elders, you know, one of the bishops, shall we say. And that person will determine whether they're truly repentant or not. And if they are, they can be let back into the church. If they're not, well, then they should stay out and think about it for a while. And I think that's a decision probably most of us would have made. A thousand years later, it became the doctrine of confession, which not everybody is thrilled with. But you see, that was not somebody sitting down saying, well, let's throw this in here. It was administrative decisions that meant well. And at some point, somebody said, we had an incident or two here of Gentiles defiling the temple. This is bringing dishonor to God. We've got to do something about it. And someone says, hey, why don't we make a four-foot wall and put a sign there warning all Gentiles to stay out? Yeah, that'll probably fix the problem. Okay. But by the time of Paul's day, it had become a crisis, you see. So, yeah, I think when we say, well, some people just sort of run off and do their own thing, it's easy to do that. And I think we've all done it at one time or another. But to be truly sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading and do the countercultural thing is difficult to do. Bob? It raises a little bit of a dilemma because there are times when God would give great enlightenment what to do, but there are other times when God is silent. Mm. And so... You don't always know if you're going to do the right thing. I mean, you might think you are and might be the wrong thing. And I know we have these general principles, but 
you know, there could be trouble in the world in the future. And you don't always know if you're going to be doing the right thing when you face great questions like this. Yeah. So are you tempted to blame God when things go wrong because people didn't have the guidance? No, that wouldn't be the right answer. <laughs> you know that one, right? <laughs> I know that one. Yeah, but but it, I consider it a, a bit of a dilemma for those people, especially if you had a two-week persecution. You'd say, well, that's not a real long-term persecution. That's a very short persecution. So you're glad those people survived, but you're trying to think through, in our modern era, how would we handle that? Well, you have to keep in mind, there were people willing to die. And nobody knew on the 13th day that it would be over tomorrow. You see, there were people who were in prison and stayed there knowing that their death would ensue and still refused day after day, refused to give in. Now they're expected to share a church with a bunch of people who took some easy ways out. I think we all understand that's a tough situation. And these people are highly honored because of what they were willing to do and have tremendous credibility. So now you can't just bring everybody back and act as if nothing happened because something happened. And I think something similar was probably behind the wall in the temple, an incident or two in which everybody said, this is terrible. We can't let this continue. How are we going to stop it? And building a wall is one way that you stop intrusions. And so that was the way that they chose. Yeah. Someone asks, is this stages of faith and action could well be? We could ask ourselves, what would we do if we were in Carthage? And it's interesting that Cyprian and the escape crowd did not seem to be thought of as being out of line. But those who stayed but did not go to prison, those are the ones in question. One thing you'll notice as we read through chapter three, it says quite a bit about Paul being a prisoner. Let me give you a little background for prisons in the Roman world. Generally, the Romans didn't have prisons as punishment. Sending somebody to jail was not a Roman way of doing things. They would put people in a prison while they're awaiting trial, or they'd put people in prison awaiting their execution. But generally, prison was not considered a punishment. So they didn't have a lot of need for prisons, and they didn't invest a lot of resources in them. But the prisoners that they did hold were responsible for their own care. That's an interesting wrinkle. So you may remember Paul talking about when he was in prison in Rome, that people came and brought him food and clothing and stuff like that. That was pretty normal back then. If you were in prison, you needed family or friends to watch out for you if you were going to survive. So it wasn't a fun experience, certainly, for anyone. But notice what Paul says here. In this passage, he's basically saying that I'm not a prisoner of Rome. He says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. That's right there in the first verse, isn't it? For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. So he is in prison, not as a prisoner of Rome, but as a prisoner of Christ. What is he saying by that? Lou. Because of his conviction and his relationship to God, he couldn't do anything else but let the Holy Spirit work through him to accomplish what God has for him to do. So in that sense, he was captive to the behavior and the actions. So Paul is seeing this imprisonment as a piece of God's plan. God could have prevented it. He did not do so. So he says, don't be upset that I'm in prison. It's part of a larger plan. And he wants the Ephesians to see it as representing a deeper divine purpose. Is that a helpful way 
for us to think about difficult circumstances today? Do we want to be like the Presbyterian who fell down the stairs and said, I'm glad that's over with, glad that's behind me? What do you think, Lou? Well, it seems to me that if we have that connection, we know we're in God's hands. No matter what comes our way, we know he's with us. In this whole world, it's toxic and it's not brought on by God. It's part of being in this old sinful world. All right. Good start. These are tough questions. And that's why there's a collective wisdom in this group that we want to draw on when we face stuff like this. Iris. So for sure, adverse circumstances challenge us in our faith. And Paul was certainly very concerned that what he's going through could challenge the faith of these young Christians in that community. We come face to face with that issue also at the bedside in healthcare, where we often see, especially when it is a severe illness, a life-altering illness, we as human beings seek meaning in that which is so hard to understand. And that meaning-making process is a deeply personal one. For us as Christians who are compassionate and who want to find words of comfort, it's important that we listen more than engaging in that meaning-making process. We will realize that people make meaning in adverse circumstances in very unique personal ways. I cannot define that meaning for someone else. In fact, sometimes I may be put off. It may really go against the grain for me, against my understanding of who God is. You know, if some cancer patient says, God gave me that cancer to refine my character, everything in me wants to rebel against that kind of a, an interpretation. But I think the best counsel for us as Christians and as healthcare providers is to roll with the meaning making that a person engages in. And then maybe gently, if God convicts you to, to expand on that, it's important for us not to impose our understanding on someone else. Yeah, it's very, very important to listen to the patient and its patients are wrestling with this very question. Why am I in this situation? Is God trying to teach me something? Is this part of God's plan? Paul seems to suggest at least some of the time it is. And maybe for most people, that's a healthier way to approach it. But Paul is encouraging the Ephesians not to lose heart, but to recognize that even with him in prison, God's plan is still being worked out with or without him, I guess you could say. Michael? Well, it's quite easy for me to be stalwart here in my <laughs> home and the only thing that may have bothered my serenity is a couple of cats. But it's a different story for people, particularly I think of missionaries, because oftentimes you're going off to strange lands, you don't know what you're going to encounter. And you know, this don't worry, you're going to so and so. This is a very peaceful nation. And you get there and a revolution starts. <laughs> it isn't quite quite as peaceful as you thought it was going to be. And I admire somebody who will put away everything they have essentially in this country and then go off to some far off land to tell them about Jesus. That takes great courage. And thank goodness I'm not tested. Thank goodness I'm not. <laughs> thank you, Michael. Larry. Approximately 11 and a half years ago, my wife of 27 years passed away after two years of a brutal illness. And I have very many well-meaning Christian friends who come from a more structured Christian background who believe that everything that happens is part of God's plan. 
Over the years, our discussions on these items has basically terminated our friendship because that view, once you've actually endured something of that nature, really isn't helpful. The simple fact that all things work together does not mean that all things that are working are beneficial. And the all things working in a non-beneficial platform can go on for quite a period of time before the all things work together for good becomes apparent. And the tension becomes when you're the one that's living in that moment, the two weeks is an eternity. And it is difficult unless, and what I found that helped keep my brain together was there were other smaller things that had happened in my past where I realized that bad events Things came out of it that were beneficial because of how God and I worked through those processes. And so I'm to try and reach an application from this thing with Paul and what my story is, is very difficult because were that to be applied to somebody else, the outcome could be different. These things are all highly individual, and I appreciate the inclusiveness of what Paul is trying to write in the big picture of this letter and how we are all to be there to support each other. And we get caught up in these discussions of minutia, not realizing that sometimes that's not extremely beneficial. So when Paul is saying that I'm in prison, but God's plan is still being worked out, he isn't saying that if he were out of prison, God's plan would, might work even better. I yeah. would agree with that statement. That is a true statement. So that's, I think, a helpful way of bringing these two thoughts together. Paul is saying, look, I can't do anything about being in prison, and God's plan is going to work out. So we don't lose a ton of sleep over this right now. But it doesn't mean that his being in prison wasn't a tragedy for him and maybe for the work. And sometimes persecution has resulted in the crushing of the work and the removal of voices that were really important. All right, Sherry. When you were speaking about the occasion where there were different choices and the five different choices that people made in the time of the disaster happening. And I was thinking of Daniel and his wife when they were under communism. And Daniel isn't here today. He's on a flight. but. I remember him telling about how his family was very strict and they got into a lot of trouble because of that. And in fact, he was going to take medicine and wasn't allowed to go on because he had not been attending school on Sabbath. So it was a sacrifice for them, but they felt it was important to do that. And Vera, his wife, her family, they went to school because they felt that was the best option to go and still keep their sense about God. And each of them made the decisions that they felt was best. And I think it's important to have grace towards the decisions that people make. And sometimes that's not easy if you feel you have suffered and they have not, and that they did not make the right decision. But I think the closer that we get to God, the more we walk with him, the more there is a patience and a tolerance with the variety of decisions that may be made from honest hearts. And I'm kind of glad his parents did what they did and kept Daniel out of medicine. 
because we've all benefited from that. <laughs> yeah, these things, the millennium is going to be wonderful, I think. Scary in some ways, but finding out things maybe we didn't always want to know. But when we see the interplay of all these things, it's going to be fascinating. I didn't know that about Daniel, but I'm personally glad he didn't go into medicine. And so if that's a way that God's plan is worked out, it is working. Livius. I wonder if the idea of a prison and being a prisoner is a contrast with how the devil has portrayed God's character as restricting. And you are really free in the garden. You will not surely die. And so we maybe see this as when we return back to God as being in prison. But Paul says, found this verse in Romans 6, verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And then I looked up the word for a prisoner here in Ephesians, and in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, it says, actual imprisonment underlies the usage, but the real bondage is to Christ, for whose sake it is suffered and to whom self-will is offered in sacrifice. And then it ends, imprisonment symbolizes his whole life and ministry. All right. Thank you. Rita? It occurred to me that what was important to Paul was that he was no longer a prisoner of Satan. He was no longer a prisoner of the world. He had become a prisoner for Christ Jesus so that he could reach the Gentiles and tell them of this mystery that he had learned of and was Reveling is maybe not the right word, but I think you understand what I'm trying to say, and that he was still learning about it, about this mystery. So I think it was he was a prisoner of Christ, and that he was a prisoner that Christ was never going to release, whereas a prisoner of Rome, he would at one point be released from that prison. So this is a different kind of imprisonment. For him, it was the ultimate imprisonment. Mm. the most important that's where he had to be because that's where he was safe and he could do the work that god wanted him to do all right terry well after listening to all this i'm a little afraid that my mind has gone off in a direction that wasn't meant but what i keep hearing through all of this is i think that we need to at least be cognizant of how loaded the phrase, it's all part of God's plan, can be in certain situations and to certain people. If you look at a parent who is watching their child be chained in the grips of substance abuse and all the horrors that come with that, or someone who is in a violent relationship and they hear, oh, this is all part of God's plan. My question is, how do we how do we help those people? How do we help them not go down the path of if this is the kind of God that God is, I don't want any part of him. Perhaps it's how can we help you get through today? How can we help you get through this hour? What can we do to support you? I really hope this is not the wrong direction. No, I think that's very helpful. And a way that many patients react to severe suffering is the approach that's called God's perfect plan. 
Johnny Erickson is one you may remember who took a dive into one of these ponds and ended up hitting a rock and was paralyzed from the neck down the rest of her life. She was athletic and everything at the age of 19, and she embraced the concept of God's perfect plan. I mean, listening to her, you're in tears and praising God and everything for her, complete okay with whatever it is that God planned for her and that her life is better than it would have been otherwise if this hadn't happened, etc. And for many people, it's very comforting, but it doesn't really address the theodicy question or the character of God, because it makes it very difficult to address. And generally, people who have the perfect plan approach generally just say, it's above my pay grade and leave it at that. And that's all I have to say about the character of God. Well, this is what God did. It's above my pay grade to understand, and I'm not going to try. Probably the majority of Christians, the majority of patients want meaning, as Iris put it, want to make some sense. And for them, the perfect plan approach probably isn't uh, always going to be the best. Bob? Delving further into Paul's life later, was it God's perfect plan that Paul go to Rome? It seems like in Bible studies I was in through the years, Paul wasn't supposed to go to Rome. He wasn't supposed to go, go to Jerusalem and go into the temple and all of that. And yet he was very close to God. So I've always wondered, how does that fit? Because of all people, he seems like he would be very attuned to what God wanted him to do. And yet it seems like in studies through the years, I've heard Paul wasn't supposed to do that. And I don't know how to put that one together. And that's not part of this lesson, but it is about Paul. So there were a couple of prophets who actually said, this is a mistake. And Paul said, I hear you. Thank you for your report. And I'm going anyway. So he took his own sense of God's leading ahead of others when they came into conflict, at least in that situation. But a little illustration from Ellen White, because Ellen White is very strong on pre-marriage and saying, be very, very careful because you can make huge mistakes when it comes to marriage. And she outlines some of the mistakes that people can make. And then when people are married, she says, never entertain the thought that your marriage was a mistake. You see the tension there? And I guess what she and Paul maybe are saying is how you got into those circumstances is maybe a different issue. But now that you are here, look for how to cooperate with God in this situation. And in some cases, such as the ones that Terry has suggested, following God might be leaving the person who is you know, causing so much difficulty in your life, preventing you from truly following Christ. Etc. So I think the point that this discussion is taking us is there is an individualization here, and you can't pick one statement and say this applies to all circumstances. Or as Ellen White herself said, circumstances alter cases. Michael, do we know how old Paul was when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, and how old he was when he went to Rome? Well, I actually did a little looking at some of that, and there seems to be kind of a sense that Paul was maybe born in AD 5, something like that, so he'd have been a little younger than Jesus. The stoning of Stephen then, he would have been close to 30, and Damascus Road would have been sometime after that, maybe a year or two. So Damascus Road, he was still a young man, very, very likely. Yeah, well, it had a profound effect upon him, as everybody mm -hmm. knows. Yeah. And how yeah. old was he when he lost his life in Rome? That would have made him about 60. Which back then was pretty advanced. I don't think the average lifespan was much more than 50 back then. I'd have been gone then. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can be grateful that we're still around, Michael. 
That's right. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Jane? In all this, I feel like adding an analogy that you brought in the class, our own class for hermeneutics, about the slave who was bought at a very high cost and didn't want to serve the master until he came to the realization that the master had bought him to freedom, to free him. So what I would like to add is that Paul had come to this realization that my master is Jesus Christ, and he was not having any doubt or anything in his mind towards the course of action that Jesus was taking in his life. So he knew he is free, and no matter what was happening in his life, he was already determined to serve his master, no matter what, because his heart was already free. So I would like to add to this discussion particular point. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jane is sharing a story that came up in class, a class that we were in, and the story of the slave market in the South, and it's a slave who refused to work. And it's very clear on that as he's being sold, and he got the highest bid ever, because he was a really big man, a, a very strong son. And when the master came up to him, he said, you know, says, you paid a high price for me. You must have valued me a great deal. But he says, I, I must tell you, I'm not going to work. And the master said, that's okay. And just get into the wagon and we'll go home and dropped him off at a pretty bungalow. And he said, this is for me. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to live here. And it had a fence and a garden and everything. And it was better than he'd ever seen before. He says, nevertheless, I'm not going to work. And the master said, that's okay. So I bought you to set you free. And the slave fell on his knees and said, because you have set me free, I will serve you for the rest of my life. Uh, it just changed the whole situation. That's sort of an analogy for faith and works and attention. Some of you might recognize actually from Uncle Arthur originally. So. All right, let's go on to number three, Ephesians 3, 1 to 6. Terry, if you would read that, and I think we have to pick up the pace a little bit, but let's read these six verses first. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given to me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, once again, he's writing to you, the Gentiles, and he's basically saying that there is a mystery of Christ. And that term mystery of God, mystery of Christ, is often in the New Testament applied to the gospel. But Paul has a twist on the gospel here. And that twist is that the mystery is the inclusion of the Gentiles. It shouldn't have been a mystery because God said to Abraham, your seed will bless all the nations. So it shouldn't have been a mystery, but for whatever reason, it was a mystery. And Paul says that he and the fellow apostles came to the understanding that the inclusion of the Gentiles was the outflow from the gospel. It wasn't clear before, 
but it became clear in the context of the cross of Christ. The Gentiles are to be included in God's people, heirs to all the promises of Israel. Come with me to verse 2. Paul says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Surely you have heard. Doesn't sound like somebody writing the people that he lived with for three years, just in the last five. Uh, it sounds more like he's writing to strangers and saying, well, you know, surely you've heard, etc. Or perhaps, as I think might be more accurate, this is a circular letter. And he's just throwing out there that most Christians will probably have heard some things that he's the apostle to the Gentiles. But Paul feels that God has called him to be a special agent for this mystery that the Gentiles ought to be included. And Paul was working very hard to gather Gentiles and also to manage the situation that they would find themselves in in the church. Let's go on to number four and look at Ephesians 3, 7 to 13. And I think this section probably is my favorite part of the chapter. Ephesians 3, 7 to 13. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. All right, so Paul is a servant of the gospel, and he says he's the least of all people. He stayed humble through it all. Well, how does he put it here? The least of the saints, the least of God's people. So of all those believers that he's writing to, he says, I feel like I'm the least of you. And then he refers back to verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1. He says there that to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. All right, so back in chapter one, it said God's plan was to unify the universe in Christ. That was God's plan. Here, Paul says that through the church, the mystery of God would be made plain to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Who are they? In parts of Ephesians, this would be the satanic forces, remember, up in the air? In other parts of Ephesians, this is the heavenly realms, with the unfallen worlds. Who is the object of this revelation? As it says here in verse 10, his intent was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What do you think? Is he talking about the demons, or is he talking about the entire universe? Which would make more sense to you here? Iris? It makes more sense to me that he's talking about the onlooking universe, because the demons have made their decision already. There's no matter what evidence is put forth, 
they will not change and they cannot change sides anymore. But the onlooking universe has been holding their breath when Christ died, has been holding their breath when they saw that the mission, the future of the gospel depends on 12 frail men. That is 11 plus one, Paul. And they felt like, wow, can that even succeed? You know, so I think it also explains that Satan has been so set at attacking the church throughout the ages and where he has been able to mislead the church. Incredible harm has been done to God's reputation. But the reverse is also true, where believers represented the Lord Jesus in the way they were called to represent him. Honor and glory goes to God, and others have been encouraged to follow the Lord also and to trust him and to know that God is good. So what is the message then, if this is the heavenly realms, what is the message that God is communicating through the church? This is mind-blowing if you think about it. And I would agree, Iris, I think limiting this, you know, rulers and authorities in heavenly places does kind of sound like the demons in a way. But limiting it to that, I don't think fits with chapter one, where the Ephesians plan is for the entire universe very clearly stated in specific Greek language there. So I would suggest in a sense that it's both that the entire universe is going to learn something through the church, and that expands the mission of the church universally. It's kind of stunning when you think about it. Nancy? Isn't this combined with the text that we're the theater of the universe, that somehow this combines, somehow we're the church, we're giving evidence of God's character through our lives, and perhaps it's an honor that if we choose to be trusting friends, that our lives, our walk with God can be evidence to the universe that God is trustworthy. Well, I think you're right, Nancy. I actually think this is the text, but you wouldn't get it from the translations that we've been reading. It must be somewhere else in here. I'm not seeing it in the King James of Ephesians 3, 9 and 10. But somewhere in Ephesians, this idea uses the term theater of the universe for this perspective. Yeah. And again, that expands the significance of the conflicts we battle with in ourselves every day. It really matters in the larger scheme of things. Larry. I started a study of Revelation about seven months ago based on a new book. And right about that time, you were doing one of the sessions on the conversations about God. And in the chapter we were reading, Graham Maxwell made the observation that if you're going to study Revelation, it's a good idea to read Ephesians first. So I did. And, and then I read Revelation and studied that. And then coming back as we're going through this, for the first time in my life, I have seen the entire story of Revelation almost is replicated in Ephesians, which to me, I'd never really understood that Paul had the same level of understanding about that that John is writing about. So that's the general comment. The specific comment about this is that if this mystery has been not understood and we're somehow involved in unfolding this mystery for everybody, the unfallen worlds, and we've discussed the possibility of the fallen angels, I personally don't think it's possible that they understood 
what they were signing up for when they decided to go with Lucifer. That would give them a clarity of insight that makes no sense. So the entire revelation that the Christian church is unpacking about the mystery of godliness is the revelation of the character to every created thing, because it needs that And I think that somehow in which I can't understand until I get on the other side, I can't understand how that's going to be beneficial to have the fallen angels understand what it is that they chose, but I believe that it will be. And so the role and what Paul's talking about here is this huge statement that every knee will bow at the name of Christ. It doesn't just say the knees of the people that are living at the end time. Is I've understood that it's every people who've accepted Christ and God and those who've rejected him need to come to this aha moment that they understand what they gave up or they fully understand what they've accepted. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what Paul's trying to get to here, maybe. I think that's certainly part of this larger picture, and appreciate you articulating that very clearly. Aaron? The question of how do we as a church witness to the heavenly realms? Our life is to be a witness through Jesus working in and through us of the character of God. All right. Michael? Yeah, in reading this epistle of Paul's to the Ephesians, this letter, the question that I have is how does it impact my life? What difference does it make to me? Because in my view, it comes down to individual decisions of each of us as to how we are to accept or reject, as the case may be, the message given by Paul. I choose to accept it because I think it's the word of God. And it has the benefit of improving the quality of my life. I don't mean physically or monetarily or anything else, but it improved the spiritual life that I have. And that is a great gift. And unfortunately, it's not a gift that is shared by everybody throughout the world. And it reminds me of a conversation I had many years ago with a pastor. And I asked him, I said, you know, there's lots of people never ever heard of Christ and won't hear it. So what am I to make of that? He said, that gives you a greater responsibility to lead a decent life and be a decent person. I hear you suggesting that this demonstration will be more by actions than by words. It reminds me of what Jesus said, by this shall all know that you are my disciples with the love you have for one another. Reconciliation of Jew and Gentile for Paul is the illustration of God's gracious mercy in the gospel and how he's going to heal the universe. All right, Livius? I have a question. Does Paul tell us here what the mystery is in verse 18 and 19? To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Interesting, there's four dimensions there. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Sounds good to me. Yeah, he seems to state mystery of God is the gospel in a sense, but he seems to state that it is the mystery in particular of the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile and the inclusion of Gentiles in the church. But you're suggesting here that maybe verses 18 and 19 project an even bigger picture ultimately of what God can do in the universal context. Let me just draw up a couple loose ends here. 
in verse 11, says, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in him and through him, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Notice that Paul is feeling confidence, even in prison. So however it is that he's managing it, God's plan, whatever, he is seeing it as the place where he belongs at that moment, at least, that God is going to use that to move many situations. I noticed also in verse 8 that Paul's very humble there. He says, well, yeah, I've, I've got this revelation of this amazing mystery, but a lot of other people have it too, and I'm the worst of all saints anyway. So you have a blend of humility on Paul's part and confidence. Let me direct you to the next question. This is in part four. How is it that Paul is able to exude confidence, 312, and humility, 38, at the same time? That's kind of the essence of mature Christianity, isn't it? To having confidence in God, and at the same time, a sense of humility about the whole thing. How does that work? How is Paul able to do that? Any thoughts? All right, Nancy. I think it's because Paul has such a big understanding of who God was. It reminds me of the description Sister White gave of Jacob when he went to see Pharaoh, that he didn't have to be at all afraid or think of himself lower. He blessed Pharaoh. And here he was a shepherd. And this is the leader of, of the biggest power of the time. But he held his head high. He was kind, but he had a big picture of God. And I think Paul had such an understanding. He had confidence in God. And yet he put himself in perspective of who God was. And it kept him humble because he never took the place of God. And we can do that today, too, when we look at the stars and, and the greatness of creation. It's humbling. It's a reminder I'm a creation. And I'm so glad I have a God like that I could trust. It's kind of like what we said last week. If you know that you are right with God, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. There's a certain confidence that can come in when you know that you are right with God. Uh, Clara May. Yes, this brought to my thinking about Christ, and I think it is Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who humbled himself even to the death of the cross, and yet he had confidence in God. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. We often base our sense of self-worth on what we have, possessions, what we've done, performance, degrees, accomplishments, or who we know, you know, name dropping, etc. Those are the bases for which we establish a sense of self-worth, what other people think, what we've done, what we have. The reality is that the gift of God is not based on achievements. It's not based on what we have or what we can offer. It's based on God's grace. So it kind of wipes away a lot of the grounds on which we find our own self-worth. So Paul here, on the one hand, is humble because this is all God's grace. But on the other hand, he realized this is the biggest mission imaginable. What we are doing is of infinite value. The entire universe is going to be different. We're not just changing the world, we're changing the universe, is what Paul would say, I think. So Paul sees the significance of the mission, but he also sees the fact that it's nothing to brag about. And holding those intention, I think, are critical to mature Christian faith. One thing I picked up in this lesson that I never really noticed before, 
as the author of the lesson said that Paul went through a progression in humility, that if you go with the generally accepted dates of his letters, that you see Paul shifting in this regard. And we can start with Galatians 1.1, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So Paul starts as, I am a divinely appointed apostle. I am not least of the apostles. And you can see this in Galatians, especially saying, you know, I know what I'm talking about. You got to take me seriously. But then comes 1 Corinthians 15, 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9. And there's a slightly different tone. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Right. So Paul now is not boasting about being an apostle. He's saying, well, you know, I don't know that I even deserve to be one. I'm certainly the least of the apostles. That's an interesting shift. But then in Ephesians 3, 8, he's the least of all saints. So he's now not even talking about being an apostle. He says, among the believers. He's in the lowest point. But it goes further. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, 1 Timothy 1, 15, he makes a startling statement. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So now he's chief of sinners. And this is clearly the latest of Paul's writings from one of the greatest of the apostles to uh, the chief of sinners, an increasing awareness. And it reminds me of a statement in Steps to Christ on page 64. The closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes, for your vision will be clearer and your imperfections will be seen in broad and distinct contrast to his perfect nature. Uh, We like to think that the closer you come to Jesus, the more you're exalted, the more you'll be praised, the more you'll, you know, clearly be a superstar of Christian maturity, etc. And yet, she says the opposite, the closer we come to Jesus, the more clearly we'll see the defects, the more faulty will appear in our own eyes. So as we journey through the journey of faith, the humility will grow. And we can see that, I think, in the progression of Paul. There's something about Christian maturity is being able to see the humility side alongside the glory, if you will. It's what we see in Ephesians, I think. Okay, we have two more hands up. Our time is just about up, but let's hear from Sherry and then Livius, and then we'll come to a close. It could sound kind of daunting to someone who is searching to be close to God to hear that the closer you get, the more you're going to feel inferior or like a failure in some way. And I think it isn't exactly like that because as you're traveling with God, there's this sense of acceptance and love that helps you stand up tall. So you're not feeling like a worm. You're realizing that God has given you gifts. He has given you the ability to work with him, that you stand tall in his love and grace. It's not because of you, but it's because of him. But it's not a demeaning experience, I think. And I think for someone who's starting on the pathway, it could sound very scary if they just feel, well, I'm going to feel worse and worse as I go along. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, Christian maturity comes to a tension between those two, as you've expressed it. On the one hand, a full awareness of the deep privilege it is to walk with Christ. And at the same time, the disappointment that you don't always meet your own expectations and other people don't seem thrilled with it, etc. So being aware of the tension, I think, can be helpful to people. But it's a tension that comes with time. And at the beginning of the faith, don't need to take the little ones and say, oh, things are going to get worse. <laughs> you know, that isn't necessarily going to help them. But as people mature, I think they need to be aware it isn't all roses, that this is a tension between the now and the not yet that will be with us to the end. Livius. I agree with all that's been said about being humble. The more you get to know God. But I think also that Paul here, I wonder if he's also reflecting on his journey, on his experience. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And Paul's experience, he was a teacher of the law, and he represented Christ, but he misrepresented God's character. And he's had this conversion from this transformation of mind and character, and now he understands what God's true character is, and maybe he's just so humbled by how he used to be compared to how he is now, because he has this breadth of understanding that is just unbelievable. To be able to write these words down in Ephesians is amazing. So I wonder if there's a connection there with his experience of what he used to be like and how he used to represent Christ or thought he would represent him. He knew more clearly the truth about God. He knew more clearly the truth about the gospel. He knew more clearly the tremendous privilege. At the same time, he knew more clearly than ever before how great is God and how great the gulf between. And I wouldn't see that as a depressing thing. It's simply realizing that the more you realize your own faultiness, the greater God looks because that God is seeing you with all the clarity you're now getting of yourself and still loving you and still pursuing you in every way. Yeah. Gary, and then we'll close. The early one of Galatians, where he was talking about how he was called directly, early on in his ministry, I think he had to establish his credentials. As time went along, his credentials were established, and he didn't have to refer to them anymore. So I take that initial one as an establishment of his credentials because he was not a disciple, and I'm sure people were saying, who is this person? He wasn't a disciple. And so I think it was something he had to do early on, but he didn't have to do later. I think you're very much on target that in Galatians, very much there's a combativeness in there that is at least partly due to the situation perhaps also partly due to the fact that he was a combative person when he met Christ and that didn't wear away too quickly. But yes, I think you're correct in pointing out that that was a situation in which he couldn't admit to anything, so to speak, that they were going to throw it back at him. And he's saying, look, you've got to understand this is what God has done with me. You can't take me lightly. And I'm thinking of two chapters in the book, Ministry of Healing chapters 41 and 42. So the next to last and the third from last in the book, which is 43. And the one is all about how the humility, the love and the kindness 
and the graciousness with which we should treat people. And this is part of the gospel is treating people with that grace and kindness and everything like that. And when you're done with that chapter, it's kind of like, I don't think I'll ever raise my voice again. And then you read chapter 42. And she says, nothing of value will ever be accomplished without backbone and standing up for yourself and so on. There's a tension there too, you see. The ideal is somebody who is gracious and kind when that is needed, and at the same time stands firm, though the heavens fall, when that is needed. And read those for yourself, the two before the last chapter. The tension between the two is striking. And I think what we see in Paul here in Ephesians is mastering that tension and inviting us to grow into it ourselves. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord. It's been a good day. We appreciate all that you have brought to us in Ephesians, particularly chapter 3, and pray that you would walk with us in the week to come. And may we truly catch an even deeper glimpse of you this week. For Jesus' sake, amen.